a brilliant young pianist played his first major recital at a London concert hall. He was only a teenager, but oh, he was brilliant. I mean, it was fabulous. And at the end of the recital, there was a standing ovation. A thousand people with boisterous applause, going bananas with praise for this young man's performance. He was behind the curtain. He had already exited the platform. The stage manager peeked out and said, hey, look, man, you got to get out there for an encore. With his head down, he said, no, no, I, I just can't do that. He said, yeah, you got to get out there. They're going crazy. I mean, everyone is standing and applauding for you. These guys love you. But this young pianist said, no, not everyone is standing. There's a gray-haired man in the balcony who is seated, and he's not clapping. So the stage manager, a bit curious, peeked through the curtain again, looked out, came back and said, okay, you got me there. One guy, but there are a thousand others. I know, he said, but that one guy, he's my teacher. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. That's our goal. The one in the celestial balcony. Now let me ask you, how do you know when you're pleasing to him? And even more important, perhaps, for our purposes today is, how does a local church know when God is pleased with the way they're carrying out the Great Commission? How does a church know that? How does a church know God is pleased with the way we're conducting ourselves as a church family? I mean, have you ever wondered about that? How can we, as a church family, be pretty sure we're hearing and receiving the applause of heaven. I believe it has a whole lot to do with a church's philosophy of ministry. Now, what in the world do I mean by that? Now, listen, a philosophy of ministry is a church's combined theological doctrines, all it believes, its values, and mindsets for how to live out the great commission. Hope you're hearing this today. Every church has one of those, a philosophy of ministry. Every church has that, even if they've never even thought about it. And it greatly influences what a person experiences over time at that church. For the month of August, we're going to take a look at five philosophies of ministry that Grace Fellowship holds dear. We teach these to our staff, and we want everyone who calls grace their church home to know what these are. When we live these philosophies out, we believe heaven applauds. We believe heaven applauds our efforts because we're well on our way to representing him well as a church when we live these out. So we kick the series off today by talking about what we call three-circle thinking. 
This has become absolutely foundational to our church life at Grace. Let's try to understand these three concentric circles and what they mean to our life as a church and as individuals. Now, in that innermost circle, and I'm gonna kind of try to get you to picture them like this as three concentric circles. In that innermost circle is the word essentials. Now, what are essentials? These are those truths on which we, you might say, have a sense of biblical certainty, tremendous confidence. The things that are crystal clear and regularly taught in the Bible. Let me give you some examples of those. Salvation by grace through faith alone would be in that inner circle of essentials. The virgin birth. Jesus is fully God and fully man. I would throw in his atoning death, his burial, his bodily resurrection. Uh, You don't need to write all these down. You probably know them. The Bible is God-breathed and authoritative for what we believe and how we live. We're to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. All these go into that essential circle. But there's more than that. We're not going to try to list all of them, but you get the ideal. Essentials. Listen, essentials are certain truths that have been handed to us, communicated, revealed to us by God through revelation, and they're not up for grabs. They're what you might call matters of first importance, or you may prefer non-negotiables. They are the irreducible minimum of Christianity. Without them, you no longer have really historic biblical Christianity. Now, please note, things in the essential circle are not influenced by culture. Let me explain what I mean by that statement. That is, they are true no matter what the specific culture says. They transcend culture, if you will. So, if the culture says humans are the result of a totally random process, no God involved, totally random, where time plus matter plus chance did a little dance and we evolved to this, sorry, we don't have to wonder about that because Scripture is crystal clear that God is the creator. The teaching is clear. But somebody says, well, that may be your truth, and that's fine for you, but that's not my truth. That's not true for me. Again, sorry, the essentials are true regardless of what the culture says, regardless of what the individual believes. So they're not influenced by culture and they're not influenced by personal opinion. But what about that second circle? Picture it now, a larger circle outside of the inner one And we'll call that circle convictions, okay? Convictions. Convictions are quite different than essentials. Convictions are things that you and I develop beyond the things that are certain in Scripture. You might think of it like this. We construct a little house of convictions based on the essentials of the Bible. The essentials are like the foundation. The convictions are the house we build on the foundation. Please hear me. Convictions are also really important. We need to develop biblical convictions and we need to live by them 
according to Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10, they are important. But unlike essentials, hear this now, convictions are not biblically certain. Also, they are strongly influenced by culture. If you don't believe what I'm saying, just do a little traveling among Christian groups around the world, and you'll quickly see that what I'm saying is true, and they are affected by personal experience. Hope you get that now. Question, question, what are we supposed to do when equally biblical Christians who are equally fervent and committed and equally eager to understand the teaching of Scripture, what do you do when they reach different conclusions about what certain things in the Bible mean? I mean, do you know what I'm saying here? Have you ever seen this happen? Of course you have. I mean, my goodness, just go to any Christian gathering and, and look around you. If we did a survey right now on all the re religious church and, and, and church backgrounds of the people of grace, we would discover, listen, that there are dozens, dozens of different abominations, I mean denominations <laughs> represented in this one church called Grace Fellowship. Do you know what denominations are? Denominations are conviction clusters. That's what they are. They have similar convictions on certain secondary doctrines, and so they form a denomination of like-minded people. But I believe that every one of us who call grace home would agree on what those essentials are. Solid, fervent, God-honoring Christians building on the same foundation, but we build a slightly different-looking house. And when that happens, we should conclude that evidently Scripture is not crystal clear. Now, you may think it's pretty clear, but evidently it's not crystal clear in this particular matter. Now, this happens all the time in a healthy, growing church. You have differences in convictions. For instance, how about the details of Christ's return? Christ is going to return. Amen? Amen? I hope you'll say amen to that. Of course he is. That's in the essentials circle. We know that because 300 times in the New Testament alone, his second coming is mentioned or alluded to. That is an essential. But exactly how and when and the precise timing and unfolding of those events and is Tim LaHaye right, or is R.C. Sproul right, or is George Ladd right? They each have significantly different beliefs on the details of that, but they're all examples of wonderful, committed Christians. You see, that goes in the conviction circle. Now, this gets kind of interesting with convictions. I think we need to acknowledge this before we leave it. With convictions, depending on your culture and your personal experience, the convictions of some Christians around you may seem a little, <coughs> what shall we say, strange to you, right? For instance, snake handling in a worship service. <coughs> Excuse me. Come on now. Go with me here. I mean, I come from the hills of Tennessee, 
and there are a lot of snake handlers around. And I know that some of them believe all the essentials of the gospel. They're genuinely saved on their way to heaven, but they handle poison snakes in their worship service. Now, folks, you know what? I've tried to get our worship leaders at Grace to move in this direction, but they're reluctant. (laughs) Think of how exciting it would be if when we enter the sanctuary, an usher handed you your own personal snake to carry around in the worship service. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't you love that? I'll guarantee you the place would really come alive. (laughs) Now, I know this gets a little weird, And I know some of you are freaked out right now, but do you realize, do you realize that we're going to be in heaven someday? Now, they may get there before us, (laughs) but we're going to be in heaven someday with some brothers and sisters in Christ who right now are convicted, and I mean genuinely convicted, that they're supposed to be handling snakes in their worship services. Their churches don't get very large, but they are full of spirit. Oh, I could go on and on with conviction areas because there are potentially not just dozens of them, there are potentially hundreds of them. There are areas where we have some biblical content to guide us, but not biblical certainty. These are areas that are strongly influenced by culture and context, and they're affected by personal experience. I hope you're listening right now. I'm about to say something super important. Here's one of the keys on convictions. We are very unwise when we take our list of convictions and start using that as a measuring rod for someone else's, else's spiritual maturity. That's what the Pharisees did in Jesus' day, and that's what Jesus condemned them for. Be very careful about that. Now, third is that outer circle that we call preferences. So you've got essentials, convictions, and then an outer circle of preferences. What are they about? Preferences are not biblically certain. In fact, the Bible probably doesn't even speak to the issue. Preferences are somewhat influenced by the culture and they are strongly affected by personal experience. The preference circle involves things like how many toilets should be in the men's room? (laughs) What color should the carpeting and chairs be? How much usage should we make of Christian symbols both inside and outside the church? facility. You're not going to hear the Bible speaking to that. Should I display a Christian fish emblem on my car or not? My answer is, depends on how you drive, sister. Depends on how you drive, brother. If you get cut off in Northway traffic and you're tempted because you're so upset to give your fellow drivers those ancient cryptic hand signals, you know the ones I'm talking about, right? I'd say get the fish off of your car. The last thing Jesus needs is another black eye because of our road rage, amen? What style of music should we play in the church service? Those are preferences. 
So I have no problem at all with someone saying, hey, pastor, I really don't like a certain kind of music. Fine, that's fine. That's a preference statement. We've all got slightly different convictions and preferences on these non-moral issues. Some people want to raise both hands in worship. Some want to raise one hand to God in worship. Some can't find their hands. (laughs) For God's sake, don't try to make everybody like you. It might be a little dull. Church might get boring if everybody was the same. One of my favorite stories is about the three guys who went fishing. One was a Baptist. You know, they're eternally secure forever and ever. One was a Methodist. A Methodist friend of mine used to tease that he was eternally insecure. (laughs) And one was a Norman Vincent Peale positive thinker. Boat capsized. All three of them drowned. They all woke up in hell. They couldn't believe it. Hell, flames, heat, the whole works. The Baptist said, I cannot believe I'm here. I thought I had it, but I guess I didn't. I thought I had it, but I guess I didn't. The Methodist said, well, I can't believe I'm here. I had it, but I lost it. I had it, but I lost it. The Norman Vincent Peale positive thinker said, I'm not here and it's not hot. I'm not here and it's not hot. But the amazing thing to me is what we fight about. Now you tell me, you tell me, Christian, which of these three circles do we have the most church splits over, the most conflict, and the most fights about? Is it essentials, convictions, or preferences? I'd say preferences, and sometimes convictions. We're willing to drop the gloves immediately and fight over preferences. We fight regularly over our convictions, but what God wants us to be willing to fight for and die for if needed are the essentials. Healthy churches get this. Let me get personal. Healthy Christians get this. And they champion the inner circle of essentials by keeping the main thing the main thing. Three-circle thinking should help you have a keen sense, listen, of what is most important and what is not so important. Healthy Christians, is that you? Are you a healthy Christian? Healthy Christians hold the essentials with confidence. They hold their convictions with humility. That'll change the way you talk on social media, by the way, if you really understand this. And they hold their preferences with a spirit of practicality. It's like, what is God honoring and blessing right now? In the book of 1 Corinthians, In God's word, chapter 15, verse three, Paul writes, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Are you hearing that? You'd better believe that Paul understood that of all the scriptures, there were some things that were of first importance. That's what he says. 
all of it was inspired, but some things are more important than others. And he goes on to say, here it is, gang, here it is. You want to know what's most important? That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Wow. Now listen, whether you're a brand new Christian or you've been a Christ follower for 40 years, hear me with love now. If you want to argue and bicker over convictions and preferences, something is very twisted in your priorities. But if you're the kind of person who wants to give your life to get the gospel out, if you're running on that kind of octane, baby, oh, we can go on this journey together as a grace family and keep the main thing the main thing. I just wonder, aren't you sick and tired of making mountains out of molehills in your life? Aren't you tired of bickering with your friends over secondary issues? Aren't you ready to give your life to something that truly matters? A hundred years, a thousand years, a million years from now and beyond. That something I'm talking about is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That something is the essentials of the faith. So let me ask you, what are you giving your life for? Oh, I love this verse in Acts chapter 20. Paul said in Acts chapter 20, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. And like Paul, Stephen, do you recognize that name? Stephen, another leader in the first century church, testified to the gospel of God's grace. Stephen preached a powerful sermon on the essentials. It was all about what Jesus did to save us and all about the core of the gospel. And the reaction when Stephen preached that message was hostile. And frankly, it cost him his life. I read now from Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 54. It says, when they heard this, that is, they, they heard this solid message uh, of Stephen lifting up Jesus as the answer, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus, his teacher, Jesus, his teacher, standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen lived and died for the essentials. He kept the main thing, the main thing. He lived for an audience of one and listened for the applause of heaven. And Stephen saw his teacher stand. 
my prayer for you and my prayer for us as a church is that we would be so effective at keeping the main thing the main thing. Oh, my prayer, my prayer is that we would so preach and teach and share the gospel. Brothers and sisters, my prayer is that we would so live and minister to the Capital District and beyond that we would see our teacher stand and applaud for us. Let's pray together. Father, it's pretty clear in your word that it's the men and women who stood for the gospel, who stood for what's most important, not secondary things, tertiary things, It's those who stood for what's most important that received your applause. May we be that kind of people, Lord. I pray for all of us, all my brothers and sisters, I pray for myself that we'd be able to discern what is most important and what's not so important, and we would give our lives for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we let all the other things kind of take a secondary place or a tertiary place. Thank you, Lord, for the grace to keep the main thing the main thing. And may our church continue to be marked by that kind of focus. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.